Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk all things customer value. And today, I've got a great, very special guest. Uh, He's a a former Army Ranger, left the uh, Army and started a company, an engineering company that he grew to $2 billion. That engineering company was, became known as a leader in its industry based on the company culture. And uh, so now he's written a book and does consulting and a podcast on company culture. So, uh, Bill Higgs, welcome. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. And I'm really thrilled you're here. Why don't you tell everybody before we get going where they can find you, um, podcast, website, and so forth, because I don't want people waiting all the way to the end because um, what you offer is super valuable. Uh, you can find me at culturecodechampions.com and everything's there on that website, culturecodechampions.com. You can get to the podcast, you can get the training materials. But uh, as Mark said, uh, started a company, we were in the oil business in Houston during a major downturn. Oil had gone from $21 a barrel to $3 a barrel. So there was blood in the streets, companies were closing down. We started up, bought our furniture 10 cents on the dollar from three engineering firms that were closing down. So it was pretty tough out there. But what we wanted to do was be a people first company, not hire and fire with the industry. And in order to do that, we did what I called no fate leadership. I wanted everyone in our company to believe there was no fate that you had to go up and down with the industry. If you were really good at what you did, and Mark and I'll get into talking about value, if you could bring value to the minds of the clients that you're touching, you're going to be able to find work even in a downturn. You might have to diversify, do some different things, but you can hang on to your people and hang on to your teams. We thought we were going to be a 35 person company. <laughs> we lost control totally. Uh, it's about 20,000 people now. It's in like 15 offices around the world. But the culture we created from the beginning is the same culture that we took to those offices around the world. And what I tried to do in this book is boil down seven key steps that we had and give you the how to's to create a differentiated culture. And so I was an engineer, dude, but I was also the only one sort of salesy. So I ended up getting a sales role. And my whole thing was how do we differentiate from the hundred other engineering firms in Houston that are all chasing the same work. And so everything I was about in culture development, people development was to differentiate and be able to talk to the client on a higher level than my competitors were talking to those clients. 
Wow, um, there's about five different things that I'd like to, to unpack there. Um, the first one is that when you have a clear line of sight to value and a clear understanding of the value you bring to a customer, um, you have the chance of, even in that oil industry, uh, being a lot more recession-proof. You're the last one to, to suffer. Um, tell well, that's me. What we felt like the industry at that time was all lump sum. And lump sum contracting is like fixed price. It's win-lose contracting. So both sides want to win, and they want the other side to lose in that contract negotiation. What we did is we wanted to do all of our contracts reimbursable. So here's our estimate of our man hours and our cost. Pay us for that estimate. Pay us our man hours as we do the work. And we want to be on the same side of the table as you, the client, delivering the project in the industry. Because the industry was continuously changing and one size didn't fit all, we wanted to have such a trust bridge with that client that they paid us as if we were their engineer down the hall in their oil company. And I said, you wouldn't take your engineer down the hall to court. So that's the type of contract we want. And we were able to build the trust and get those types of contracts uh, in an industry where at that time, maybe $20 million worldwide was reimbursable. When we hit a billion dollars, all billion of it was reimbursable engineering based on trust relationships and good contracts. Wow. And so what is the business outcome that your clients got from that? Certainly the trust sounds good, but is there, are what business outcomes do they get? I'm thinking maybe um, they're more flexible, have ability to adjust on the fly. Um, but tell me what other kinds of business outcomes that gets to your customer. One of the things it did is because you're on the same side of the table, when there would be a problem, it was our problem together. When you're in a lump sum relationship, give you an example. They're always drilling new wells. So you could be halfway through design and a new exploratory well comes in and changes your design because you need more heat or something. Yep. If I'm lump sum, I tell the client, hey, I'm shutting down for six weeks while I figure out what that's going to cost you. <laughs> and I'm going to multiply it by five and try to sell it back to you. <laughs> Instead, what we did as soon as that came in on a Thursday, by Sunday, we had already figured out the impact. We had rolled it through the drawings. We made the change. We got with the vendors the next week, did a rolling change with them probably incurred no cost and no schedule change to the client. So what the client was seeing is just total ability to react to what's happening in the real world because we're on the same side of the table, but they had to trust that we were going to deliver a good final product. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things you want to do is get in their head. What makes that client a hero in their organization? So what we found is for a client, normally first year production from a facility is about 15% of the nameplate. So if we can produce 90% of the throughput in the first year, that client would be a hero. Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. And so it's, 
it's funny, what makes them a hero? And then how do you work to deliver that? And that's building the trust. And you end up not talking about what my hourly rate is for an engineer. We're talking about how to get the right people and the right team working for that client. Yeah. So, you know, what I, you, you answered it perfectly. And so when I heard trust, that's having them trust you and certainly being trusted had value to you. But if they start seeing what is of value to them is that uh, less impact on schedules, uh, more flexibility to adjust to reality on the ground uh, and the ability to ramp up a project and get it uh, delivered more quickly, closer to capacity, um, closer to budget and with no surprises. Those are a lot of business outcomes that trust brings to that client. Um, and we tried to do that from the beginning. Like I could talk the good fight, but what we would do before we had a kickoff meeting is we would go through our libraries and pull everything that we had that might be applicable to that project. And so at the kickoff meeting, we might have about 30% of the project done just from using what we call go-bys from past work. And so when that client came in and all of a sudden they're seeing their project materialize right in front of them. Now, all of a sudden they're going, well, these guys are going to stay ahead of me the whole way. Cause a big concern for the client is, are they going to be trying to push a rope, trying to get you to do things? Or are you going to be pulling on that rope and pulling them along and taking them in the right direction? And if they feel that you're going to pull them and that you're looking out for them to where they won't get a surprise down the road, then you really get a lot of autonomy. You've kept that client informed. They let you go do what you need to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big protagonist of uh, sales organizations and, and entire selling the, the entire organization that is the vendor or selling organization in your case, uh, must, you know, Mustang engineering, having a deep understanding of the client's business, not just a deep understanding of what you sell, but how, what you sell impacts every corner of their business. And, uh, it sounds like having that trusted relationship helps gain that additional knowledge, but also communicate that you have that additional knowledge, which in turn gives them confidence that you're the right selection. Well, one of the things, like I discovered Miller Hyman, we started in 87, but I didn't discover Miller Hyman until about 2003. And Miller Hyman's like a sales process. Yeah. It's sort of a canned process. And I tell people now, if you don't have one, get one because it will make you money. So I had learned sales sort of on the job training, but found myself in charge of 23 salesmen in eight different industries. And I didn't have transparency into what they were doing and how they were going to deliver. And what that a standard sales process does is it gives you a common language between like your operations people and your salespeople to where now they can communicate and figure out how you're going to close a sale. It was total eye opener. We picked Miller Hyman because it was focused on a total win-win relationship. You bet. So, so you didn't want to go after it if you weren't going to be good for the client. And we always sold that way. If, 
if we realized we weren't the right answer, we would then help that client find the right engineering answer because we knew the industry, we knew where the right people were, we knew where that talent was. And a lot of times when we would direct that client to someone else to get a job done, then we had that client for life when they had another project because that trust was so strong. But that's why I wanted a sales process like Miller Hyman that thought the way we did to just work on a win-win. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm I'm a Miller Hyman guy from way back. I started I took my first Miller Hyman course in 1990 or 91. Oh, uh, so I'm I like I tell people I'm I didn't just I haven't just drink the Kool-Aid. I <laughs> I'm marinated in the Kool-Aid. Um, and I love the idea of having a common language and process. Um, I am a huge proponent and you know what we found is that Miller Hyman is great about developing a sales process and it's capable of helping you understand your differentiation and providing value to the customer but only when somebody lays their wisdom uh, about value on top of the Miller Hyman because a lot of clients um, tend to adopt Miller Hyman as a process, but not internalize the the important parts of the Miller Hyman methodology that deal with understanding the customer's outcomes and understanding the customer's value. Um, it's in there in Miller Hyman, but it that's the number one thing that people who adopt Miller Hyman or actually have since found out any methodology. Um, seem to get wrong. Is that something, did you ever struggle with getting your salespeople to understand in Miller-Hyman language, the wins and results? Was that something that you needed a lot of coach to get them to really excel at? I I really like that because they gave names to the different players in the client organization. Yep. So there was an economic buyer. That's the person that can sign the check. Yeah. Before Miller Hyman, we never really tried to identify that person and what would be a win to that person because they were normally two levels higher up than the people we were working with. Yeah. And then you had the the user. What's their win result? Uh, You had coaches, which are people that are in that organization that may not be in the decision matrix but they think that you're the right answer for that client. Yeah. But going through and, and having to articulate what the win result is for each one of those people, I think was super valuable. And it, a lot of times it was hard for us to articulate it. And we would actually have to go back to that person and try to get them to articulate it for us. And we would undercover uncover wins that we didn't know they were being judged on within their organization. And so it's, it's working that communication to pull it out of them. Yeah, that's, you know, so it sounds like you worked on those win results harder than uh, the probably the majority of Miller-Hyman clients because in my experience, the entire customer decision pivots on win results. And if you've done everything but win results really well, you <laughs> you have a little bit of an advantage and it's nice that you have visibility, but you don't have closeability. If you, if you nail down those win results, I think 
that's where you get the value. It sounds like you were really rigorous about understanding those. Right. I think when you look at that uh, Miller-Hyman blue sheet, a big chunk of it is on what your strengths and weaknesses are. And how are you going to uh, make your strengths stronger and how are you going to mitigate your weaknesses? That's a big chunk of that. And that's where everybody gravitates to because that's like the easy stuff to talk about. Hey, this is where we're strong. Hey, we know we're weak in this, but this is how we fight it. But a lot of that is wasted if you haven't figured out how to make a hero. And I, I used to term making heroes. We wanted to make heroes of our suppliers, yeah. our coworkers, Mustangers, and our clients. If you haven't figured out how to make a hero, the win result for each of those key decision makers, then what you're doing in strengths and weaknesses uh, may not differentiate you for the right things in order to close that contract. You bet. Um, did you ever run into a time where um, maybe the client told you these are the people involved in the decision, but you kind of felt that there were more people uh, that you had an, an advantage, you had some outcomes, uh, so you had to actually add people to the buying dynamic? Uh, definitely did. Uh, the one I remember in around 95, 96, all of the major oil companies came to us independently and said, we need to learn how to Mustangize our projects or we're going to go out of business. And this is like Exxon and Mobile and Conoco and Texaco. And it's wow. like, these are names that have been around forever. I'm going, yeah, right. Pinch me. But if you want a Mustang as your delivery system, we can do that. Uh, we were too far down the food chain. It turned out they were right because Exxon bought Mobile and BP bought Amoco yeah. and Chevron bought Texaco three years later. But in the meantime, each of those big oil companies gave us their most high visibility project either to bid on or they just gave it to us to change how they did their work. And I'll never forget Exxon. So our first ever bid to Exxon is going to set the depth record for deep water. It's going to be in 5,000 feet of water, gas facility. And their bid comes out and it's super onerous. No way I could bid a Mustang method to that bid package. So I bid it like I would to an Arco. And so I turned in a non-compliant bid. Uh, but I had a relationship with one of their partners. Partner was BP on the client on the client side, and the in-house BP person I knew. So that's like my coach in Miller Hyman. Yeah. They asked you to identify coaches yeah. in the client organization. I sort of called him Deep Throat Coach. <laughs> he was way in on this thing. He calls me up and he says, "Bill." Uh, your bid was non-compliant. They threw it in the trash can. And I go, yeah, I know it's non-compliant, but they said they wanted to change how they did business. And he says, well, the good news is they read it before they threw it in the trash can. And they just feel that you're overloaded with too many projects. And so I walked him through what we had and how we were going to staff it. He said, he coached me on how to send some information back to him 
to pull us out of the trash can. <laughs> Two more times he called me, and his first words both times were, Biggs, you're in the trash can. <laughs> but, but then he helped me get out of it, and we ended up winning that project. Uh, they discovered another reservoir next to it, oil facility. It became the biggest development in the world in deep water. Wow. And it, it put us as the number one deep water engineering firm worldwide. Wow. So we rode that wave just, that's what took us to a billion dollars very quickly, wow. was hitting those major projects. And if it hadn't been for Miller Hyman, I wouldn't have known that I was looking for coaches and trying to find those. Because they're generally people that aren't on the list of who you should be talking to on a project. Yeah. So one of the one of the things I did, I put a, I figured my salespeople are talented as opposed to engineers. They'll go talk to anybody. Engineer won't talk to anybody. So my salespeople are real talented. And I did what I call the full throttle things. So I said, this salesperson is the driver of our sports car. And then I put a pit crew around them. So I put a project manager. Those are like anal retentive yeah. people that just want to dot the I's and cross the T's. <laughs> I put a uh, administrative assistant in there. I put two young guns. Young guns are people that are under 30 years old. But I wanted them to see how their bread gets buttered yeah. and how this system works and why you start developing coaches that are your age group that 10 years from now will be decision makers somewhere. So I put this team around each of the talented drivers and then together they would work the blue sheets together. They would work the strengths and weaknesses and they would work those win results. And then when we would actually win it, they would take a sports car over, they'd get the client and the client team out, they'd put them in the car, they'd push it, get pictures, give them pictures for their walls and we would just celebrate yeah, that's that great. win to where that client would never forget it. Yeah. So you organized a bunch of people around an opportunity and that uh, a lot of companies do that, but I think there's a lot of companies that underdo that. I have a couple clients that have 15 different roles that touch the customer. There's probably three, three flavors of salespeople. There's an inside and outside and outside is split into the hunters and the farmers. The, the farmers might be segmented depending on whether it's a small, medium, large, or huge customer. But then you've got uh, some application engineers or, or technical sales support engineers, a demo specialist, a uh, bid specialist. You've got uh, technical support, installation, client success, project management, technical support. Uh, customer support, three tiers of uh, technical support, and, and and everybody but the salespeople and in enlightened company, the sales, the technical sales engineers, uh, is told, well, yeah, you touch the customer, but stay in your lane. Sales doesn't want to hear from you. Just do your job and don't screw anything up. And as a uh, somebody who went through Ranger School. Does that make sense to you that you've got a whole bunch of people that you've got in positions and highly trusted positions with your customer with in, with insights and vantage points that the point team doesn't have 
And would you tell them, would you like tell them to throw away their radios and not contact the yes, point team? In, in the Rangers, it's all about cross-training, cross-fertilization, cross-communicating. Yeah. Somebody goes down, the other person steps in, and it's yeah. like you'd never missed them at all. Uh, all those layers and all those people you talk about, that's very typical. What I tried to do was boil it down to that talented driver and that one project manager being the, the key points, and then they would bring in the other pieces as they needed. Yep. But and I was working, yeah. always working hard on communication. Oh, absolutely. And so the when you bring those other people in, um, I think, I think, and the book that I'm about to release, uh, Radical Value, makes the point that those people need to be read in on what the customer value is and what the wins and results are so that they, from the get-go, know exactly what they're trying to deliver and they aren't trying to just go through the paces of their role and their written process um, impersonally. i uh, give you an example. So we're doing the Blue Sheet Method, been doing it for a year. And in one of the industries we were working on back, they're working on a proposal. And I said, uh, where's the blue sheet uh, for the sales opportunity? And the people, technical people working the proposal did not have it. So all that work had been done. We'd figured the win results. We'd worked the strengths and weaknesses. To me, the blue sheet is the roadmap now for the proposal that's going to hit all the hot spots for the client and my people that are writing a proposal don't have it don't have a clue they're just doing their normal proposal uh those those communication gaps will just drive you crazy yeah i i was really big with my client when i was still doing miller hyman as a consultant uh on using a blue sheet as a handoff document yes um because Absolutely. that provides that third dimension behind just all the engineering documents that describe the, the you know the nuts and bolts of what's got to happen, uh, the human side of what you're trying to do is is not contained in any of the other documents besides that blue sheet and understanding the value and the outcomes that every individual involved wants to wants to do. Uh, that's the huge difference maker. Well, the other thing that I think needs to happen is you're working at Blue Sheet, but you may currently be working for that client on other projects. And I think it's also worth getting those teams together that are working for that client and just briefing them on what you're chasing, what's going on, what's happening, because they've got a lot, a lot of eyes and ears and contact that's happening on a daily basis. And they could hear something that'll help you. Man. Uh, yeah. Give you a quick example. A uh, person in a hallway in an oil company heard them talk about a project we had done where we were installing piping on a working facility and they had to take a piece of pipe we had designed, go cut it and put it back in. And they had heard this in the hallway and they said, don't know if it's important enough, but they weren't happy about it. That particular, that little piece of pipe came up in the final presentation at the absolute worst time. They said, well, what about this problem that you had on this facility where this piece of pipe was wrong? 
But because we had gotten that comment and we knew it, we had researched it and we found out that their engineer had actually made a design change to it, unbeknownst to us. And so we could spin it that that engineer was doing something good, but had not you know, consulted with the inspectors and things. We could spin it all right, but if we didn't know about it, oh, you yeah. caught flat-footed, and that allows them to steer it to somebody else they wanted to go to. So yeah. it's those eyes and ears. You've got to bring all that data in. Yeah, Bill, I'm going to tell you with 100% certainty that what you did there and that experience, um, blue sheets and what your Miller-Hyman consultant taught you about Blue Sheets wasn't in there. I think that was your culture and your leadership that put that value flesh on the Blue Sheet bones because there's only a relatively small number of uh, companies using that methodology, the Blue Sheets or any other methodology that would be able to do that reliably and repeatedly. And uh, I think the blue sheet helps open your eyes to it, but the culture is what makes it actually happen. And so I'm going to, uh, I'm going to push it back on you and uh, take credit away from the blue sheet because that's a, that's a culture thing where you are creating a sense of team, uh, which well, is, it's, it's which, also not just a sense of team, but it's a culture of being totally other oriented. So you're sensitive to a supplier saying something or a client saying something and go, oh, they're not happy or that wasn't good. And you don't just blow it off, you bring it back and take it up to people who might be interested in it. So you're right, it's a total culture of being other oriented and again, trying to make heroes. Boy, uh, I that's, that's really, um, and I, I think you're being modest because a casual listener will say, geez, I got to go out and get Miller Hyman so I can tell myself and, and have and have these kind of hero stories inside my company. And it isn't Miller Hyman as useful as it is and as strongly as I believe in it isn't what made those stories happen. It was your culture. And so I'd love to have you just really briefly walk through you know, your seven steps that you describe in, in your new book, The Culture Code Champions. Uh, so that people kind of get a flavor for it and uh, have a reason to, to go explore more? Well, the first thing is to open up the communication, and that's opening communication top to bottom, left to right in the organization. And to do that, we did a lot of things where I call you create free space for people to get together. So it could be a paper airplane flying contest over lunch, or it can be going out in helping build a house for uh, Habitat of Humanity on the weekend. But you're breaking down the silos, you're getting communication across all the departments and discipline, and you're getting people to believe that what they see and what they hear matters and that we wanna get it right the first time. So if we're not doing that, tell people, let them know about it. So that's the first thing is get the communication going, get people working together and then Build that sense of team is the second one. And that, you know, I was gung-ho airborne ranger. I was king of the hand-to-hand -hand combat pits in ranger school, which is sort of a fun thing. But uh, that sense of team in the army, it's like we had patches, we had songs, we had flags, we had yodels. We had all the same stuff at Mustang. We even had 
uh, a horse mascot named Blue that spoke in sign language. But all of those team building things and trinkets and toys would just appear on people's desks or at skating parties. They'd go home with the kids. And what we were working to do is get the hearts and the minds of not just our people, but also engage their family and their spouse. So then the third thing was establishing a repeatable process. So how you actually do your work. I mentioned earlier, having a kickoff meeting for everything, get the right people around it, figure out what your outcomes are that you want. And like we talked about, what are the client's outcomes that are gonna make them a hero? And so we worked hardest at the beginning and in the book I talk about your ability to influence the outcomes is best in the beginning. And I show you how to do that. The fourth thing, which people don't understand at all, is hard copy communication. We're here in the digital world. Why don't you do it all digitally? But we would uh, send our monthly newsletter home in the mail. The spouse reads every word of it. If it comes via email, they'll read the first title and flip it off. If they get it in their hand, they're going to read it. At the coffee bar, we put up pictures of things that are going on, fun stuff. So what I found during downturns, the downturns spiral down at the coffee bar. <laughs> so if you have positive things at the coffee bar, spiral people's attitudes up with fun things to talk about, that goes down the hallway with them. And people could feel the difference in our hallways when they would walk in compared to another engineering firm. The uh, fifth thing is sell while the shop is full, which is what we've been talking about for about 40 minutes. But the key thing there is when, you, when you're full, don't stop selling because you can't just turn it on and off. You've got to keep selling. And when we would get overloaded, we would figure out a way to do that project. And a lot of times we would do it for half of our normal budget because we would just do what we needed to do. It increased our efficiency. The next one is continuously recruiting top talent. So we had a fun thing. We didn't have an HR person, professional HR. So we were 1,200 people. That might blow your mind. Wow. But we had a thing we called Operation Horse Thief. And so we did a new hire breakfast. We get all our new people in. We'd have all our managers there. We'd go around talk about culture, projects, where they came from. And we'd get them in the culture on day one. And we'd ask them, who are the best five people you know in the industry? And that would go on our Operation Horse Thief list. <laughs> Those are the people we want to go get. But think of it, when we were 250 people, I had 250 people looking for the next Mustanger. When yeah. I was at 1,000 people, I had 1,000 people looking because we made it a fun, there was a fun name for it. People knew what we were looking for, and we would find them everywhere. So it, it's just, and you want to recruit in good times and bad, in bad times, some really good people come available. We would find a way to snatch them up when they were available. And then the, the last, the seventh step is to give back to your community. If you can get people comfortable that you're selling enough that the company's not going to disappear, now, now they've got that extra energy when they go home and their family's spiraling up. Now they've got the extra energy to go in the community and help give back. And we found that in those give back activities outside of the company, we would identify new leaders of character. It could be a designer or a purchasing person. We'd say, 
whoa, look at them. They're leading 30 people out here. Let's give them a little bit more to do back at the office. And it was a way for us to increase people's pay by giving them a different type of job, you know, across time. So, so our turnover rate was less than 2%. In Houston, it's 45% in engineering firms. Uh, that's big, huge cost. So I say, what's your current culture costing you? It can be five to 10 points on your bottom line. We were four times as profitable as the other companies in our industry due to that lack of turnover, lack of inefficiency. So that's what those seven steps you're trying to do. That's, um, those seven steps reek leadership, uh, which is something you learned uh, through your military career, but you applied in a completely industry, in a new industry. That ranger ethos of having everybody cross-trained and having everybody know what everybody else is doing uh, is so different than today's uh, modern siloed company where uh, rather than being cross-trained, the uh, refrain is stay in your lane. I know. Um, Makes and, no sense. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I understand the need for specialization, but uh, I think the pendulum has swung too far on specialization and there is a profitable niche for a lot of companies, for the company in whatever industry you're in, if you're the one that most successfully de-silos, um, you've got, just by de-siloing, you've got a competitive advantage. So and, normally what happens, they build silos because it's easy to manage what's in your silo and report at the top. Oh. And you can have five silos, they all report out at the top. It's looks very nice on an org chart and everything else. Yeah. But every silo has a lot of the same overheads. Yep. And so if you can matrix it and get rid of all those overheads, man, a bottom line goes up. Uh, I You said the magic word, which is kind of something that I've, I've said. I Years ago, I started writing a book called Antipreneurs, Why Big Companies Can't Innovate. And um, a lot of it was about corporate cultures, the cultural aspects that made companies really uh, less than flexible and, and anti-preneurial. And one of the things like was a lot of the processes that big companies develop are not to make it easier for workers to do their job, not to make them more effective, but to make them easier to manage. And you said those exact same things, is that silos are a function of making an organization easy to manage, easy to chart, not more effective, just easier to manage. And yeah. uh, as a leader, knowing the difference is a big deal. Um, I have a quote that has made some managers at big companies score, like, look at me and I don't know, I might've lost me a client or two, but I, I say that any process that makes you good at doing something made you bad at doing everything else. And, and you better know what you made yourself bad at and you better have a plan for figuring out when or if and when that's gonna bite you and what you're gonna do about it. Um, I started early in my career working for a company where the founder uh, put out a, a memo 
he was as he was founding this company W.L. Gore and Associates he uh, wrote a lot of memos about what we stand for as a company and here's here's aspects of our, our culture and one of his memos was on um, policies or procedures and he said in essence it's your job as an associate of W.L. Gore and Associates to be able to see when one of these policies or processes doesn't fit and it's your responsibility. Everybody from in the entire company is responsible for calling out when a policy isn't meeting the company's best interest and to forsake the policy in the interest and not to mindlessly follow it. And uh, that principle followed me along. And so that gave birth to the any, pol any policy that makes you good at doing something makes you bad at doing something else. And I think a lot of the... Um, hierarchical uh, silo-based managers in the world kind of bristle at that. One of the things that we used to say, looking at the, the real big engineering houses we competed with, is that they had all these detailed systems and procedures so that they could have C and B players and still get a, a decent product out. Yeah. Whereas what we wanted is we wanted all a and B players and just use what minimal systems you need to get the work out. It's like a flip flop philosophy. It's a little bit riskier because you're trusting your people to communicate and take care of business. Whereas the big siloed organization, it's like they don't trust their people. They don't have to trust their people. They're trusting the system to deliver. Yeah. But it's, it's a whole different way of working. <laughs> oh, it, it's a very different way of working. And that that big company, CND player, but rigid process makes you really good at repeating the same things you've done before. But it makes you bad at becoming excellent at deep well drilling or deep water drilling because nobody's done that for. There's no process yet for it. And so your B and C players are just not equipped and your managers, your middle managers are too tied to their existing systems to figure out how and when to change them. Well, and they're all totally scared and hate change. Yeah. I, I wanted the company, we called it Mustang Motion. I was moving people's offices every three months. I was moving everything. And I said, just get used to change. And we got it to where people would just laugh at change because everything was changing. But that's how I wanted them to be comfortable, be comfortable in a totally changing environment and that you have to just move with it, realign your team, redo whatever you have to, to roll with those changes. And it allowed us to be, you know, very client-focused, client-centric. Yeah, that's that's actually one of the uh, questions that I would always ask potential new clients when I was doing discovery. And we were talking about, you know, if they would saying, I've got to completely transition, I've got to uh, transform my sales culture. Uh, I would ask them, uh, tell me about the changes, you you know, change initiatives you've done before. Well, we haven't done any, or we tried one a couple <laughs> years ago and it went, went horribly. Um, now I knew that, we had to spend a lot more time, a lot more energy, and they're going to, unfortunately, spend a lot more uh, money on me 
uh, to try to figure out how we're going to make this change happen. On the other hand, when a client would say, well, you know, we've some changes have worked better than others, but we've been doing a lot of them. And, we, you know, and so I think my people don't love change yet, but they're getting used to it. Um, you know, when you've got a culture like that, that the whole engagement is going to be different and you get to you get to manage what the changes are, not whether the changes are. Yeah, whether you can even get them started, <laughs> get over the inertia. Yeah. But when, when we were like uh, 100 people, there was a glass ceiling at 120 people for some reason. A couple of, hit 120, and then they'd bounce back to 80 and bounce yeah. around in there. Yeah. So we went to some management classes when we were at 100 to say, hey, how how do you get past this 120? We don't know what's going on in the industry. And we explained our matrix organization in these classes. And the gurus said, well, you can do that till you're about 50 or 80 people, people wearing multiple hats, bouncing around, but then you've got to go silo in order to run a company. And so after two of those, we just gave up. And that spring we blinked and we were 250 people. And we said, well, I guess it just doesn't apply to us. <laughs> it was, I mean, all the classes we went to, everybody was silo, silo, silo. Well, and I think some of that is self-fulfilling. It was when, when you silo, it, when you have workers who are silo-friendly, who are worthy of being in a siloed organization, who are those BNC players, yeah, you have to that 50 is a hard limit. Uh, Gore actually would grow a manufacturing facility until it was about 200 people. Um, and as soon as it's two, 200 to 250, they would break it up into two facilities so that yep, yep. a team would stay at 200, but we just now have two big teams and three big teams and 12 big teams and 14 big teams. And, um, well, the, other, the other thing we found, Mark, is that even though we were not siloed, you still end up with silos. Oh, sure. So my, so my project might become a silo. And what I found is I needed to have some people that worked across all of whatever the natural silos are in the company that could cross fertilize good practices. So I worked to find like my secretaries, my personal assistants, I would get them all together. They went across the whole company and we'd find out things that were going on or our project controls people or some of our uh, top leadership would go into all the different places and uh, you can find out what's going on and make sure that we're not double dipping or recreating something and work that communication. But you need some methods to get out of the organization what people are working on so that you're not pulling against each other. Yeah, and um, some of those get feel funny and feel uncomfortable and feel forced, uh, but you got to do them yeah. or pay the price. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to change the subject a little bit and we kind of been nibbling on it before. And that is, um, I believe that customer value is everything. Um, understanding your customer's outcomes, understanding their business until you can articulate the outcomes that they're going to receive from working with you better than the customer is able to articulate them because you have some domain experience and you can articulate some specific outcomes. But value is 
everything and organizing your entire company and your entire com culture around value isn't the same as what you were doing because you still have to develop open communications, create a sense of team, establish repeatable processes, um, hard copy and all of the things that you did. But if you give people the direction they're marching toward, um, all the rest of your seven steps become easier. That's, that's my story. And I'd like to stick with it beyond the end of this interview. Tell me if I should or shouldn't. Well, one of the things that uh, a client said to me one time, they said, Bill, Mustangers go native better than any other company I've ever seen. And what we pushed with our people, we said, there is no reason for Mustang to exist other than delivering value to the customers. I get no value. Mustang gets no value from what you're doing. All we get value from is what you do to take care of that customer. So our people, if they were working for Texaco, they would like bleed Texaco. The Texaco people would think they were Texaco folks, not Mustang folks. Or if they were working for Conoco, man, they're like Conoco people. You know, they're bringing their Exxon and their Shell experience in to try to help improve what Conoco is doing. But they would go native. And I I love that. So, yeah. Yeah. Their paycheck, their paycheck came from Mustang. But they were whatever that client organization they were working with. And they were trying to return shareholder value in that client's organization. You bet. And the clients couldn't believe it. Yeah. I... um. I have this oversimplification and I'd like to, to hit you with it and tell me, push back as hard as you want or support it as hard as you want. And that is um, your culture code champions is a lot about how to lead. And my val radical value is where to lead or what to lead toward. And you can do neither without the other, uh, but a leader, better be darn sure he can tell the difference. Yeah, if you don't know where the objective is and you can't define it, <laughs> you can't do an op order. Yeah. So you, you can't set yourself up or your team to be successful. And in every op order where there's a final objective, there's multiple intermediate objectives. Yep. And as a team, they have to be able to visualize that end objective and then together, you've got to figure out how are we going to measure that we're getting to the right steps, the yeah. intermediate steps to know that we're going to deliver that on time, under budget, with good quality, those yeah. types of things. Yeah. No, you're right on. And culture, to me, culture is just the flip side of the leadership coin. Yeah. Leadership and culture, they're pretty much two sides of the same coin. I think good leaders will create the culture's but then to have that value objective, that's what it's all about. Yeah, I I really love the talk we had. When you were talking about um, our purpose is to deliver value to customers, actually in the first chapter, in the first introduction to my book, uh, I declare that the purpose of any organization is to deliver more value to customers than it costs them to produce. Yes. And, and that is the only reason an organization exists, even if it's a nonprofit. 
The American Red Cross is there to deliver more value to customers than it costs them to produce. And if they choose to price that at a break-even, that's fine. Um, but if you don't produce as much value as it costs you to deliver, you've got a short road to a certain end. <laughs> Let me tell you something that I put in place and I had to fight my engineers and my project managers to do this. Whenever they would see something, say you're working for Conoco, and they'd say, man, if they would change how they did this and do it the Texaco way, it would save them this amount of dollars and this much schedule. So I had the engineers start putting those on a cost effectiveness list because you couldn't wait till a project was partway done and it needed to reduce costs. You couldn't change those things. You had to identify them as you were doing it. Yeah. And the engineer said, well, this is just basic engineering. Why do I want to keep that list? Well, at the end of the project, I could go in and total up where the client said yes. And it was twice our engineering bill was saved just from the things on that list. I said, now I can go show in black and white to a client. Our brains were turned on. Our eyes were knowledgeable. Our team was together. This, these are black and white changes that the client approved that resulted in these savings. Yeah, there are a lot of other things that happened, but it was black and white. My engineers and my project managers said, we don't want to keep a list of that. Again. But when we started winning projects because we had it, then they started doing those lists religiously. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> well, Bill, this has really been a pleasure. I think you and I are kindred spirits on so many things, and uh, I hope we have a chance to interact a lot more in the future. So. Uh, thank you again, and I'm, before I sign off, I want to have you give your uh, coordinates, web, web address, and whatever you want to give one more time. Okay, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading Radical Value when it comes out. I think it's coming out next month or so. Yep. But uh, you can find everything on Culture Code Champions at culturecodechampions.com. And I have to say, hoo <laughs> airborne ranger <laughs> there you go thanks mark okay bill thank you so thanks for everybody for listening to another episode of the value clarity podcast and we believe that value only exists in your customer's mind and because of that your success is all in your customer's head thanks have a great day well, it ain't easy, cause value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're gonna drive both of you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues, cause you'll be singing those old, don't know value blue. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.